those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc., a strategic consulting and marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today we're speaking with Matt Morgan. Matt is the CEO of Addiction Campuses and someone I've gotten to know quite well over the past uh, six months or so that he's really moved into this role. Um, For some of you that don't know, Addiction Campuses is under basically completely new ownership. They sold uh, last year roughly and Matt and his team came in and so it's in many ways a new company and so Matt has a lot of insights into what it's been like to transition into uh, an old failing business model and revamping it to meet the demands of the current consumers and market and payers. But before we get too deep into that, I wanna hear from our wonderful sponsors, Soberlink. Hundreds of treatment programs are already using technology to improve patient outcomes. Is yours one of them? If not, it's time to upgrade with Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system. Soberlink keeps AUD clients engaged and instills accountability to improve your clients' outcomes. But don't take my word for it. See for yourself by signing up for a risk-free, exclusive pilot program. Just email info at Soberlink.com. That's info, I-N-F-O at Soberlink, S-O-B-E-R-L-I-N-K.com, and mention the Recovery Executive Podcast to get started. So Matt is someone I have a lot of respect for. Uh, He is incredibly committed to quality clinical care. He's incredibly committed to bringing value and driving not just addiction campuses, but the industry as a whole forward. And that's something that I've really aligned with him on and something that I work hard and we at Circle Social work very, very hard to do is to make sure that the industry as a whole is, is moving forward and that we're making advancements towards better quality care, better quality delivery, uh, and just better environments for everyone that's working within addiction treatment behavioral health. So we'll start off the conversation with a very high level overview and just kind of understanding where is the industry, what's happening. And Matt has an incredible amount of experience building and growing uh, small and large organizations within the healthcare space. And so he'll give us some insights on what it's like to come from the outside. And I'll tell you that Matt's one of the smartest guys I've talked to. Um, He was able to kind of come into this industry and start figuring it out and seeing it, you know, based on some of the things that it took us a couple of years to really build and figure out and the data to have, you know, he had a a basic understanding, you know, after just a couple months, Um, he's someone that's very focused on learning. He learns very quickly. And so that was something that just very much impressed me about him as we started our conversations. And then as this conversation moves forward and more towards the end, we'll get into specifics. So Addiction Campuses has one of the highest performing uh, business development teams in the country right now, at least based on any data that we have. They also have some excellent uh, in-network contract rates. And so he'll talk a little bit about how that was developed at Addiction Campuses. And so we appreciate you know everything that he's willing to share. So I know that's a lot of really exciting information for everyone listening. So let's jump into this conversation. Why don't you first just tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and your company and your background? Sure. Sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. Thanks again for having me. It's, uh, it's 
privilege and I've been able to listen in at times to some of the other podcasts. So um, again, just uh, appreciate the opportunity to share. So a little bit about me, I mean, uh, just very simple and, and quick. Uh, you know, I, I have, uh, I live in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Um, I have a, a wonderful family. I'm married, have four, four kids ranging from 12 all the way up to 25. Um, just incredible time. We've, uh, we've really moved all around the country uh, throughout uh, my life, both upbringing as a child, as well as um, even into adulthood. Learned how to adapt really quick, learned how to learn really fast. And uh, the, the beauty with, uh, with who we are as a family is uh, we really are a close-knit group and we really enjoy spending a lot of time together. And I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek because we're spending even more time today <laughs> together than what, than what we all expected and anticipated. Um, obviously, uh, Nick, as you know, but uh, for the audience, you know, the CEO and president of uh, Addiction Campuses. Uh, we are a, a company that's based in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, we're a, what I would call, when I first came in, I've been the, the CEO and president for just now 12 months. Um, so back in 2019, in late April, I joined and, you know, joined a company that, um, you know, what I would consider is to be a traditional addiction treatment provider. Uh, we have four locations in uh, the states of Massachusetts, Ohio, Texas, and Mississippi. A uh, total of 530 uh, detox and residential beds. We offer a full continuum of care ranging, you know, on the ASAM levels of 1.0 up to 3.7. Um, a great, uh, great organization. It's six years old uh, as a company. It was founded um, in Mississippi as the initial location. And, and frankly, just a great group of people with a great purpose and uh, great opportunities in front of us. And so, our company is, um, you know, learning how to adapt, learning how to learn extremely fast these days, as you know, and uh, really proud of how much uh, we've been able to not just adapt, but to begin to transform, you know, who we are. Yeah, I just want to uh, clarify for everyone and give us a little bit of background. So Addiction Campuses, most people are probably familiar, but you, when you came in, there's basically an entire new leadership team. Um, Addiction Campuses was sold and bought, so it's really under new ownership. And it's kind of almost a new company at this point. Is that right? Yeah. So um, about a year into uh, new ownership, when the founder sold the company, uh, they the owners had decided to make a change with management. Um, the, the founder had uh, been able to, I think, do what he wanted to do. And so it was just a natural time to make a transition. That also didn't just mean management, as you know, Nick. It, it also was a strategic choice and a direction to go in a much different, uh, much different path. And that was predicated on a lot of things. I'm sure it was predicated on what was going on in the industry. It was also predicated on what, uh, you know, the desire is to, to grow and to build new value. And so uh, the board and, and owners obviously looked to make that change and it, relatively quickly from the time they, they closed on the business. And so for, for us, um, the, the new team that has joined, and I came in very quickly and, and literally built a whole new executive group um, of, of incredible people I'm sure we'll talk about later, but uh, just really began that work right away. And so while we're still a six-year-old company, we're really embarking on a whole new direction, a whole new world in front of us. So it does feel like uh, a new company. One piece I mentioned really quick is the last 12 months has all been about uh, becoming one company with one purpose and one mindset. And as you know, and in this space with so many different locations and 
anytime you have more than one location, you have a different way of doing things, a different personality, a different culture. And so those are all things that, um, you know, we begin to work on as soon as we started recruiting that new team. Yeah, thank you for the background there. And you hit on a couple points I really want to dive into. But before we get too far into that, I just want to work a little bit more on the background and kind of give people a perspective where you're coming from, because you don't have a behavioral health background originally. You've done a lot of impressive work in overall healthcare outside of addiction treatment. But can you just talk a little bit about your prior path before coming into addiction campuses? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, my my path, my initial path has been uh, started in the um, the public nonprofit uh, large healthcare system environment. You know, I, I my master's degree is in healthcare administration. I thought back in high school I always wanted to be a CEO of a of a big large hospital for for whatever reason. I really can't I can't recall <laughs> that that why is, I wanted to be a hospital. That's so interesting, but. Yeah, I mean, that's what I thought at 15, 16 years old I wanted to be. And so I just kind of set the course and said, this is where I'm going to go and work, you know, every day thereafter to try to get there. And interestingly, I landed my first real, I'd call it real job in um, a, a very large healthcare delivery system in St. Louis while I was getting my master's degree and then left and went down to Dallas and spent a long time uh, in a, a very well-known um, nonprofit, uh, you know, great faith-based institution and just a, a really cool um, way to start my career. But, you know, I, I did a lot of things. And as you, you alluded to, I've really had a, a history of um, moving from one sector of the healthcare services industry to another. Um, I did jump out of that, that large multi-billion dollar type environment, which as you know, is very corporate. It's very, what I'd consider to be slow, um, but yet still very effective. Um, I left because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to go start my own company. I wanted to learn if I, if all the things that I learned in my education and my experience in my first seven, eight years of my career, I could apply for myself and if I could go grow something. And so I started a couple of companies, crazy that I tried to do two at once, but um, <laughs> I learned, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> if you don't make money, you, you make experience, right? That's what they say. And so um I learned with one of the businesses a lot of experience on uh, what not to do in, in growing a company. And you know what it was? It was a three, three and a half year stint in um, uh, kind of the orthopedic uh, distribution world. Tough, tough gig, um, but I learned a lot. Um, fortunately, I was able to get out of that kind of, un, you know, too many, not too many broken bones or anything in that, in that regard. But um, in the same sense, I had another company and fortunately that was going really well. Um, and I was able to, over the course of six, six and a half years, um, do really well with that, um, you know, sold the business and, and then kind of decided, what do I want to do next? As part of that transition, you know, I, I've always um, really desired to be in healthcare, as you heard from the initial um, you know, comment about wanting to be in the, in the hospital world. I think it has a lot to do with my family, my parents, others were always around, um, I think, the medical profession. And so I think for me, it was just a natural desire that I wanted to have a daily impact on the health and the well-being of people's lives. And so I found that the healthcare system was a way to do that. It led me after selling my company back into um, a new sector. I really like to learn. I like to jump into new things. And so for me, uh, I wanted to find that next new challenge. It was about succeeding, but it was about providing value in a new environment with maybe new ideas and new ways of doing things. And so it led me to um, a home care 
uh, company. And in fact, over the course of about four years, led both a home care and a hospice company in a, a large private um, organization that really was becoming an integrated post-acute care system. And so it helped me learn, I think, a lot about the continuum of care and how one portion like home care plays a big part in um, a skilled nursing facility's value and what the two could do together. And so as I did that, and I, you know, I had a lot of fun there, it gave me an opportunity to, to uh, actually, for the first time in a number of years, work in the same location that I lived, which is kind of a unique point. Um, and, and then it led me to another opportunity in the home care space. I decided I had a lot of great fun there, but I also kept banging my head against some competitors that were really good in the home care space. And so I actually joined a competitor. It was the largest publicly traded home care company, at, uh, standalone home care company at the time. And so I spent the next four years there. And so as you as you hear, you know, there are there's a pattern in my background as I go to new places, it's to learn new things, it's to try to get better, it's to try to provide more value and to make a difference in people's lives. I did a lot in that company, Nick, um, in the uh, the four years um, that I was in uh, the publicly traded company. It it taught me a lot about um changing and reimbursement and understanding the, the larger context of an industry and how to pay attention and, and really to, to zone in on what's happening outside of your organization, almost more than what's happening just inside your company. And so for me, um, it, it really helped open up my eyes to how as a leader, I had to learn how to adapt my team, our direction, our priorities, how to allocate resources and really try to apply um, all the dynamics that were taking place in the marketplace, how, how do I really change my execution and my strategy to be able to take advantage of that and succeed and do well? Um, I left that company after uh, a number of changes within uh, the internal um, organization, massive, massive change in that company, really successful company today, um, and, and still stay in touch with um, the CEO and, and just have a, a really interesting relationship with a number of people inside that company. Um, but I left and I joined uh, a very interesting um, organization that was a dental laboratory um, organization. It's a, a multinational organization that's you know in Canada and Mexico, the US and then in Asia. And I became the CEO of this dental laboratory company that was really, uh, again, um, a, a neat opportunity for me to go in, change some things, add some value, and learn a whole lot really quick. Uh, I did that for nearly three and a half, almost four years, and then joined uh, the company that I am at today at Addiction Campuses. Um, so I think as you hear, there are a number of scenarios that if you just weave the story together, what you'll find is, you know, I really like to go in, make a big difference, add a lot of value, learn new environments, learn new people, adapt and transform really quick, and then grow. And at the end of the day, growth has been a major desire. It's been a major outcome. And it's been really a testament to the people that I have always either worked with or brought in um, as a part of, of the team to work together to, to achieve some really cool things. And so that's what's led me here. It's an incredible opportunity to do that in such a, a great industry that I'm learning 
and still have a lot to learn. But uh, that's that's a little bit about my background and where I come from. And as you know, it's it's pretty eclectic. And so um, it's allowed me to see a lot of, of neat things in different industries to hopefully be able to apply here uh, within this space. Well, thank you for sharing that history because I think it's really helpful that people will understand what we get into in the later conversation here. And I remember when we first started talking, I mean, a lot of the points that you brought up were what really struck me about you. You know, as I've grown Circle Social, I think one of the things that we're known for is industry trends and analysis. And as you said, a lot of people get stuck inside their facilities um, for many reasons. And so they don't have the time or the opportunity to understand that wider perspective. But, you know, when we started talking, you clearly were already looking at some of these trends um, that a lot of people were missing and you were coming, you know, new into the space. So people that had been in it 10, 20 years, um, I saw that you had insights that, you know, others had missed. And that was very interesting to me. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, as an outsider, as you came in and you started looking at some of these macro trends, you know, what struck you as you first came into the treatment space? What similarities and differences did you see related to your previous work? Yeah, I, you know, it, it's really interesting. It's part of what attracted me as well. And so I think, uh, you know, I tried to spend, I spent about four and a half months, kind of just a quick backstory, I spent about four and a half months kind of trying to decide, do I want to do this? Um, you know, as I was talking with the board and others, really, was this the right space for me? And did I feel like I could add value? Part of it was the larger um, structure of the industry that attracted me. Uh, because I, I don't want to just come in and, and with a new team and, and an organization that's already existed, just do the same thing. I mean, we want to do something different. We want to create real value. And so the things like, um, you know, a lack of a industry structure, you know, I think um, very clearly the industry is evolving and um, it's it's a highly fragmented industry, which if you look at the, the types of companies I've been in, uh, home care, super fragmentation, you know, hospice fragmentation. And, and there's a lot of consolidation taking place in both of those uh, spaces, as, as you know. But, but this industry is, you know, whether you want to roll in behavioral health and the SUD uh, space, it's still, it's still highly fragmented. There's a lot of small players, not a lot of concentration in one, one or two geographies or even one or two special areas that uh, the focus of, of a major provider would have. So I, I look at that and I say that's very consistent with where I've been. In addition, I think of, you know, quality standards, you know, as, as you know, better than I do still, and I'm learning, there really isn't a clear path yet that's been defined. There's a lot of great things that are being done. You take a shatterproof, you take others that are really plugging into what can drive quality standards, but there's not one that's truly been defined. Yes, we have the associations, we have all those things, but there hasn't been a true standard. When I was in the home care space um, back in, I guess it would have been 2011, 12, 13, those years, CMS was doing a lot around defining the quality standards and how it applied specifically in the post-acute setting and, and even more so in the home care setting. So there were quality ratings that were being established. There were the whole five-star rating system that now I know has evolved dramatically in that whole space. But this industry has lacked that. And I, I too, believe that there are things that this, uh, whether it's coming from a payer, whether it's coming from a provider, whether it's coming from a group or a consortium, 
Uh, it needs to happen. And I think as those things occur, the industry evolves, the industry progresses and matures, and it really does help companies provide real value to our patients. And so I see that as a very strong consistency in this space as I did in others. Um, the last is scale. You know, that's an easy thing to talk about, um, but what does scale really mean? And I think what I've found as I've learned, and I'm still learning, by the way, but as I've learned through conversations with many other organizations and, and when I look at other things that are going on in the space, to me, the only real thing that scales is value. And I think one of the challenges that we have, it's not just go buy a bunch of, of providers of beds and detox and res, or don't just go buy a you know, an outpatient, you know, a center that's doing, you know, 100 visits a, a day. It's what, what value do you really provide? And, and how can we as an organization look at whatever we do as a value production? And if it does, we go make that happen in as broad of a base that we believe is possible, as efficiently as possible. And, and I believe that when value truly is created for the patient, for a provider, for whatever the, you know, the, it could be a partner, you know, um, as you work together. But I think when that occurs, I think scale naturally occurs because it's what people want and it's what people need. And, and then you spend your time really focused on those things. I found that true in other industries that I've been in. And it's easy to think that it's just footprint, you know, or leverage by volume or, and, and those are all great things that do truly, I think, make up the definition of scale. But if all you do is that, um, there's not a lot of value uh, that I think um, can be delivered unless it's focused on some type of differentiation. So one example, Nick, in our business would be if, if all I did was uh, as, a, as a leader was just decide we wanted to grow, you know, more detox and res beds um, and we start expanding our footprint. Um, and we either do de novos or acquisitions, um, or and then over time we add some MAT providers, and over time we add some you know IOP and some true outpatient, and maybe telemat and telepsych and all the things that people are talking about. If we did all that, yes, we would have some scale that people would say, "Wow, they've really grown to be big." But our desire is to take all of that approach and integrate it together for the purpose of really providing value to the patient which then stems, I think, into a lot of other things that add value in others. It adds value to payers, it adds value to society, it adds value to communities all around. And to me, that's where, as we expand and grow, the scale is in the integration of all those activities because it leads to a real value of managing and helping people reach the outcomes that they really desire when they seek treatment. Yeah, I, I love that. There's so much there that I want to unpack and dig into a little bit. Um, you know, this is something that I talk about a lot, you know, and we've discussed quite frequently around the fragmentation of the industry, the the maturation as it's slowly occurring, a little bit slower than I thought it would at some point. But when I look at business models, right, I look at them from two perspectives. I see one is opportunistic. And that tends to be the immature markets, the fragmented markets. There is a huge demand and limited supply. So simply by hanging a sing shingle, you're able to start doing business and, and generally start doing business successfully. Um, but as that market matures, that's no longer a sustainable business model. and It's not a scalable model. Right. And I think I see that happening now with an MAT. But 
an example I like to give people is let's say that there's a country that doesn't have chocolate right in that country. Well, people love chocolate. It's pretty good. So if I introduce chocolate into that company, I can gain market share really quick. There's going to be a lot of demand. Right. Um, and I'm going to be able to kind of move in and there'll be some first mover advantages. But the reality is eventually people are going to see those opportunities and they're going to build a lot more chocolate companies. And then now I have 50 chocolate companies. Well, I'm not going to be able to compete unless my chocolate is better than everyone else and unless I gain that reputation for it. And for me, that applies to every industry and aligns exactly with what you're talking about. For healthcare, it's no different, right? Really easy to fill that demand. But once that demand is filled and once it's oversaturated, which is really kind of the point that we're at um, right now, you have to deliver value and differentiation. Otherwise, you're just going to fall by the wayside, you know. So I don't know if you want to kind of comment on on that a little bit more. Yeah, well, first of all, um, I don't know if it's the national emergency or pandemic, but this whole chocolate analogy, Nick, is killing me because I'm struggling <laughs> from uh, staying away from the Reese's peanut butter cups in the fridge over there. And so I don't like that analogy, but I totally buy into what you're saying. So they're doing a great job, in my opinion, of differentiating the taste of their chocolate for us. I, I hear you, and I agree. I I do think you know, and and look, at being new, I certainly appreciate how far this industry has already moved, and and I do believe it has moved substantially. But I think there's a whole lot of additional movement to take place, and I think what you're talking about is is spot on, in that you know. And you've heard the you've heard these things, and they they kind of drive me crazy. And it's um, probably because I'm new, but the concept of heads in beds and things like that to me, um, that is more of a of a measure or a statistic that people say to kind of spur what we have to do every day because that's the that's the what you know we're trying to find ways to get people into treatment. Well, when we really stop and think about okay, so let's just say that's being done. Well, what is being done while the patient is in treatment? And to me, that's where the real movement of an organization and an industry like ours can go. And it really begins to focus in on that value. And to to me, it's clinical programming. It's using evidence to do what we do. It's to really fine tune and make consistent the processes inside of an organization that apply to patient care. Um, It's building and enhancing medical oversight. It's connecting medical oversight while in treatment. Um, And that, by the way, doesn't always mean on-site treatment, but also now virtual. But making sure that that medical oversight is integrated within the, the patient's everyday life and care, potentially with their primary care physician and with their family care and with the things that they have. I mean, to me, that's the progression that as an industry and as an organization, we have to move. And it's it's almost like we're trying to take um, a, a little tiny, you know, plant and we're trying to put miracle grow on it and like superpower um, you know, minerals and things that will get that plant to grow extremely fast. Um, and that's what I feel like we're trying to do. And I think realistically, you can, you can also um, overwater that plant and it'll die. And so we have to be careful, I think, not just as, as an organization, but as an industry to not try to move so fast. And, and I think what could happen is 
you could have payers or you could have the government, you could have others be, be much more sophisticated than our industry. And we could have a hard time catching up if we push too fast. And it could actually create um, unintended consequences for providers um, that then have a downstream impact on patients. I prefer, and you probably know this about me from my conversations with you, I prefer to take that gamble and keep pushing um, than I would to not push and just let other things take its course. But I just think as leaders, uh, this, this is where as an industry, and this kind of gets back to a similarity and a difference, I think our industry is not just fragmented in providers, but really as an organization, um, we need to build more collaboration and integration between leaders across the industry so that we can all try to better not just the the ourselves um, but really try to better and improve the overall industry and our approach to how payers treat um, the way we provide care and how we can collaborate with the the medical world those are all things that are going to take an organization not just individual providers to do and so uh, to me, there's just a lot that we can do to progress further in the value chain. And I think these are some of the things that strike me as, as opportunities. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, I mean, I think we're 100% aligned on that vision. And one piece I want to look at here is that quality component that you're constantly bringing up. You know, it's something that I harp on all the time. And I think a question sometimes comes into the industry as it, it matures more. We still have a lot of this potential for consolidation, but I think there's concerns, right? Uh, especially among potentially smaller providers, you know, that somehow as we grow, we're going to lose connection to the patient or quality care, or maybe, you know, as it gets bigger, it's more about the money, less about the patient. You know, I don't think any of those things are accurate. But one of the things that we see a lot when we're going into providers is those exact things that you talked about. There's a lack of consistency. There's a lack of standard of care. There's a lack of quality control or even being able to define quality um, in clinical care and processing. And I mean, I can't tell you how many providers we go into that don't even do uh, standard supervision or observation of their clinicians, you know, like so they're not even they're not even checking to see if they're doing a good job. And the clinician doesn't even know if they are or not. You know, they're just kind of basically going off of their own internal radars. Um, so I think you're exactly right that that need for quality is there. And, you know, what I'd be interested in hearing your comments on is kind of commenting on that idea of, hey, you know, as we get bigger, as the industry consolidates, as maybe larger um, private equity or larger organizations are part of that consolidation, you know, what do you see as the pros and cons of that vis-a-vis -vis clinical care? Well, um, if, if I understand your question right, I think, you know, for for us and, and for the whole industry, for that matter, I think what um, as we I think it takes, you know, bold, courageous um, providers and payers and people in the industry to kind of drive a stake in the ground. And it's kind of like what uh, Shatterproof's doing in one sense, where they're just going to gather a group of people, a group of organizations, they're going to plug away at this thing, and they're going to prove out a model. There's certainly others that are going to do the same. And I frankly think the space is wide open for uh, companies like ourselves and, and many others to begin to do their own thing. And from my perspective, um, 
you know, as, as much as I've plugged, you know, shatterproof today, um, and, and I don't do that intentionally. I mean, I think it takes those types of bold moves. And I think you'll see us do that over time to begin to define what we believe quality really is. And I think when you define that and you then begin to build resources around that and you, you set your processes and your systems up to be able to track and manage and monitor those. And then, by the way, be vulnerable enough and transparent enough outside your organization to share them. I think it starts raising the level of, uh, you know, kind of a standard and of competition and the benchmark changes. And I think the benchmark has been too low. It's been a willingness and acceptance to not have. A defined quality standard. And so, look, I know what I'm saying is hard. It's, it's going to be hard for us to do. We're, we're not there yet, and we're going to continue to fight every day to do it. But I think what the, the pros are is it allows us to begin to look at how do we evaluate ourselves um, in the, in, uh, I would say, from the eyes of the consumer, the patient, most importantly. I mean, what are we really doing to affect the change that we believe is life-changing for the entire life, not just in the 30 days or the 60 or 90 days that they are, happen to be under our either on-site care or our virtual care, but what happens in year one or year two or year three, and are we really concerned about that, and do we want to track that over that amount of time? Do we follow our patients for life? We certainly want to, and I think that's part of our desire. To me, the pro is we're able to evaluate in some objective form our ability to deliver that value that we, we referred to um, earlier. I think the con is because there are no true standards, it's going to take some time to prove out you know, one standard versus the other. And I think that's where, as an organization, being involved in industry-wide activities, and encouraging more industry-wide participation in things like this, we can elevate the whole industry, which, you know, is scary for some. I mean, at the end of the day, there will be a lot of providers that can't deliver that type of quality, and they'll, they'll either go out of business because the patients will start getting smarter and start doing like they are in every other industry where you can pull up on the internet how they're rated versus others, and they'll go out of business. So there's a lot of fear in that for some. But, but those are the companies that, frankly, I don't, I don't want around. And I think many organizations would say the same thing, and I'm, I'm okay with saying it. I think it happens in every space I've ever been in, and I think the cream rises to the top. And so we want to be a part of helping drive that type of, of change, and, and quality has to be where it starts. Because if it's only based on price, or if it's only based on location, if it's only based on you know, the amenities of what you may offer, we're missing the boat. And so I think the reality is that I could go on and on about pros and cons of quality and standards. It is hard work. I don't think I've ever been able to say one time that the work, even back in the home care company, where we were trying to define uh, how we would interpret the five-star rating system and how do we have to change all of our people's processes and documentation and all the work we had to do with our EMR. And I mean, it was massive and it was a complete organizational change in thinking, tons of training, tons of resources, tons of, of attention and time to detail that never was really considered. That is a massive undertaking. And this industry needs to go through that at some point 
And I say, why not now while we're still building and growing and really kind of at the beginning stages of that change? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You know, and when I look at it, that level of standardization around quality outcomes and metrics, um, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort, but it can also take a lot of money, right, to track all of those clinical outcomes and to build that into, you know, uh, clinically informed feedback loop so that your clinicians are improving, your systems and processes are improving, is expensive. And so that's, I think, where one of the pros of consolidation comes into play is at scale, you're better, better able to offset those costs and build better data-driven and you know organizations built around outcomes um, that the one-off provider or the small provider is not as likely going to be able to do. So I, I think that's one of the pieces that I, I really... Um, hope to see continues to evolve in the industry. Yeah, and I think um, I think you're right. I think the reality is it, it's going to take the consolidation. It'll take that that naturally happening, and also um, investments will will make that happen. But it's going to also take it's got to take that vision. I mean, the truth is, some some are just in this to grow, and that's great. And and we certainly are in this business to grow, and and I think we are, and it's, I think we'll certainly continue. But growing is defined in many ways. It's not just in um, the number of patients served. It's not just in um, profitability. It's it's in value. It's in quality. It's in a lot of things. And so as long as the consolidators that uh, I think will be in this space um, continue to share in that vision, which I do believe exists, and I've, I've heard that from a number of people, uh, I think we'll be able to uh, lead the way. And I think we'll be able to help the industry along with our own organizations, um, you know, value and growth. And I think that's where, that's where you see real maturity in an industry is when, you know, kind of the players, be, they begin to define themselves, right? The, the consolidators begin to get bigger and, and then the smaller companies either go out or they kind of just continue to, to move along. And the moment when you start seeing real alignment across an industry um, happen, around quality, around policies, around um, lobbying and, and those kinds of things. It's really it's really when things happen in, in a good way. And I think we've seen some of that even in this industry. I don't want to ever um, just misspeak and say that uh, we haven't. I mean, looking at where we are right now with this national emergency and the pandemic, I've seen a lot of really good things because of our involvement in the National Association of Behavioral Health or um, NAATP. And, and because of our uh, membership in those two organizations or associations, we've been able to be a part of and, and directly contribute to what's taking place um, currently nationally um, because of our membership. And so those happen, but I think we're still pretty fragmented in that approach. And I think we can only get better. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about that a little bit because that's something that I've been pushing for a long time. And I think you're right that there part of the fragmentation is that there's camps within addiction treatment, right? It can be the older nonprofits versus the newer for-profits. It can be, you know, providers integrating MAT or MAT primary providers versus those that aren't, you know, and, you know, unfortunately our executive roundtable that we were running got derailed a little bit here with COVID, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. that's one of the goals of that entire event is to bring in together the executives of treatment providers across the space right and build these relationships and, and build that you know and it's the same reason i'm an advisor to the board for you know behavioral health association providers is i think we need to move that forward so i'd love for you to speak on that a little bit more and just kind of talk about where you see the opportunities for collaboration 
Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, I experienced that in another industry. I think in the home care space, you know, you have a National Association of Home Care that uh, the history from from when, at least when I was in that back in 2011 through 2016, uh, the, the truth is, you know, it was a, a wide range of members. And I, I from what I've seen so far in our industry, it's, it's very similar in that you have a number of large organizations, but the majority of the membership was truly made up um, of very, very small uh, locations and, and providers. And so in that home care space, you know, you'd have little companies that just had one office and you'd have thousands of those members. And then you'd only have, you know, two or three of the big, the big mom and pop, um, you know, organizations. And I say that jokingly because even the big companies at the time were still evolving and trying to become mature. But, you know, that's what I think has happened here. And whether it's, it's defined as large organizations or nonprofit uh, and, and private, you know, I think I'm still learning. But what I will tell you that I see huge opportunity to drive collaboration is in you know, in ensuring that there is a healthy dialogue between any organization in uh, our space, whether they're nonprofit or or um, private. And uh, I think the challenge is the industry's history certainly uh, comes with a lot of tension between the two. And I think that's part of what at least our desire is to break down those barriers, begin to talk about what companies are experiencing within um, within their patient base and, and what are they finding working and what research is being used and what kind of quality is being derived instead of protecting and thinking that um, one company is going to fix the whole entire market um, beginning to share you know and I, I know this is an overplayed word but best practices or best thinking you know to me is where we can really improve and I think those types of associations allow us uh, whether it's a formal association through NAATP or if it's just like what you were trying to do, Nick, pulling people together and just start talking about what you're experiencing, what you're thinking, what you're building. Um, look, I believe, and, and this is my nature, so this may be why some would listen to this and say, well, I'm not going to share all that we're doing. Here, here's the truth for me. For me, I think everything that companies do can be done um, again, meaning there's not a whole lot of new things being done. And if there is, someone's going to be able to duplicate that. I think there's enough in the world that you can learn and apply and you can, you can make happen. And so why not share what we're doing and let people do it? I mean, from my perspective, the only thing that is not easy to duplicate is culture. And so we believe culture is the biggest differentiation in, in a company. And in our company, that is going to prove out. So the, the strategy that we deploy of going in network, well, you know, Nick, better than me, everybody's talking about that. Well, the strategy of, you know, um, collaborating and sharing ideas, um, well, we all should do that. And, and everyone can copy that. And I hope they all do. And I think that's where collaboration occurs and needs to occur because it can help us with payers, it can help us with patients, it can help us with uh, referral sources, it can help, help us with technology. And why not, if we're really all in this as an industry group, um, regardless of the way you're you know, organized as a 501c3 or you're privately funded or you're investment owned, why not try to grow the value that we provide? And I think learning 
um, is the best way to do that in sharing with one another. And so I know that's what we were planning on doing this past this past month, and COVID had a different opinion of that. <laughs> um, but you know what? I look forward to that. And I do think it's going to take people like you. It's going to take companies like us. It's going to take leaders that are willing to be a little bit more transparent. Um, you don't have to give away the farm and the secrets. We're not going to talk about things you can't talk about, but in the sense of ideas and concepts and challenges, those are all things that I think, um, you know, really helps a an industry move forward in areas like quality, in areas like technology. And, and that's what we need to see more of, I think. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, I think that's really the key to moving forward and the purpose behind all of that collaboration. Um and so kind of jumping off of that and going back a bit to uh, earlier, we're kind of getting some more specifics into what's happening over addiction campuses. You know, you made a comment in the beginning that you guys have four um, larger detox residential facilities. But, you know, we've laughed before that that's considered large in this space, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, four, right. four centers <laughs> is a large organization in addiction treatment. Um, and I think people uh, sometimes forget that behavioral health in general is like less than 1% of the overall uh, healthcare market. And then addiction treatment is a subset of behavioral health. So small organization, right? So lots of opportunity. And so that's why I think there's advantages to everyone collaborating together because, we need uh, a larger scale and more heads and think more smart people working together to build some of these quality metrics that we need to talk about. But let's start first with the kind of business model. So you came into a really traditional business model um, that I've you know harped on in addiction treatment for a while. It's a destination rehab model. As you mentioned, each facility is kind of far flung. It's um, kind of doing its own thing. There's not really standardization or alignment across the facility so much. You know, I've always said it's more of like a holding company model, um, similar to actually kind of what UHS and Acadia did with uh, Psych Behavioral. So how does that model compare to what you've seen as successful in your other areas of experience within healthcare as you've built these other um, organizations and other industries? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting, Nick. I mean, I think um, first I would just tell you that is what it felt like and what uh, we walked into when I, when I came here a year ago. What I will tell you is how remarkable the progress that uh, I think we've made as a whole organization in 12 months, because when I think about that and where we are today, what we're accomplishing and doing, it's all focused on um, changing that model, as as you know. Uh, you know, I guess the question that I, I ask myself is, in when I think about how it compares to other organizations that I've been a part of, I always go back to the model and I say, does this make sense for who we are in the context of the industry and what's taking place and what we're finding with um, patients or consumers and providers, the referral sources, et cetera? And, and when I think about, you know, today, at least, in, and especially so with the pandemic and national emergency. But I think about we already were in the midst of changing industry trends um, around payers and acceptance and parity and all the different laws that were, were being um, you know, passed and put into effect. Then I think of consumer behaviors now even more so and preferences because of the changes that people are kind of enduring right now. I think of our unemployment situation and I think about how does that impact you know, what model needs to be deployed. Uh, and, and I just think about what is the right way to build um, value for our patients, given the current and what we can at least think about, you know, projecting, um, forecasting the, the near next two, three year environment to look like. 
And, you know, that's somewhat short-sighted as well. I think, you know, 10 years, 15 years down the road, that's where our vision is set and where we really want to go. But, but I think, Nick, the, the model itself, you know, heavy reliance on the internet, um, kind of a business-to-consumer type model, I think from an SUD perspective, addiction treatment, I feel like that that is a lot less valuable today than it was in the past. Um, I think for behavioral, though, it's it's kind of interesting, and, and I don't have a great answer for this, but when I think of behavioral, I think the whole business-to-consumer model with a lot of internet focus and a lot of consumer um, technology and applications, it's actually probably more valuable today, given the national um, emergency and pandemic that we're in and, and the need to provide those kinds of services around depression and anxiety and stress. Those are all really important, and I think reaching out directly to consumers and behavioral is extremely valuable and important. I, I think, though, for who we are today, this is really a, a, a shift in mindset um, because we were already going there strategically, and that is to less brick and mortar, which in, in our business we call less on-site care, um, and really beginning to deploy lots of resources and focus and attention on expanding our footprint, but footprint does not mean necessarily on-site care. It means virtual care. It means care that's provided to outpatient, um, you know, type programming and services around that uh, in the communities and through virtual treatment, um, you know, options. And there's just lots of ways that we can do that differently. And I think I think that's a very different model than what obviously I inherited. Uh, we do see it being very different. And what I've found in other um, industries and in other organizations, you know, it's it's very similar to the hospital world. I mean, frankly, I was a part of hospitals in the late 90s when the, the BBA um, balanced budget amendment was passed, and it required massive change to cost structure. And that's when you began to see a massive uh, influence and surge of ambulatory surgery centers and how they needed to shift a lot to the outpatient environment. In fact, um, that's even my first exposure in the home care space when we began to look at hospitals. How do you do we really need a home care and is it really valuable or not? And you began to contemplate those things in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so I've seen that same type of focus and shift of resources occur in other industries. And I think we're right in the very heart of that now. Um, so much predominance of our business relied almost solely on detox and residential. And while I think that makes a lot of sense for the first six years of this company, it is definitely not how we live to what our vision is um, and, and to live up to the standards that we expect and what we provide. I think we have great care in patient care, but there is a whole massive amount of care that's needed pre that and post that um, that we have to deliver and that we've been on this path of building. That's great. So I think there's a comment I want to make and then a question related to what you just said there. Uh, my comment is, you know, we straddle psych behavioral and addiction treatment uh, in what we do at Circle Social. And what we see is kind of a really strong divide where psych behavioral is almost 100 percent dependent on referrals. Right. And some very limited boots on the ground um, business development, community outreach. Whereas, like you said, addiction treatment has been much more consumer facing, much more um, direct to consumer advertising, especially online. But neither of those models work as a standalone. Really, they need to be integrated. And 
it's funny because on the psych behavioral end, we work more to build the DD, uh, you know, the direct to the consumer marketing. And on the addiction treatment end, we're often working to build more of the business development. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and I always compare it to pharmaceuticals, right? I mean, Big Pharma figured this out back in the 90s when they started yeah. combining direct to consumer advertising with their boots on the ground marketing to physicians and other referrals, right? And I mean, they saw massive, massive jumps in profitability. I mean, you know, a, a prescription that has direct-to-consumer marketing behind it, usually through TV for pharma. Um, but they've seen as high as a nine-time increase in sales, right? And the addiction treatment behavioral health end, you know, from our internal data, we haven't seen as much. It's more about like a 20% increase we see in the number of referrals coming in when you kind of combine both. But I think that'll change. I think there's different reasons for why the jump's not as high there. Um, but anyway, just kind of want to give some perspective on that. And then the comment I have for you is, there's a lot of pressure, I think, and there's a lot of need in the U.S. to reduce the cost of care delivery, right? That's coming from consumers um, because they can't afford the high cost of care. It's also coming from the payers because the payers are always going to push down the cost. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. You know, so you're talking about building out these outpatient models. And then now, especially integrating telehealth. So what do you see as potential to further drive down costs for consumers and payers, but also obviously on the provider end, on your end, addiction campuses, maintaining profitability throughout that. Yeah, it's it's not easy. Um, gosh, it it would be great if you know you could flip you know physical structure for virtual care overnight. And look, we've heard of situations and scenarios like that in our space just recently. We've heard a lot of that. Um, you know, providers saying they've been able to convert 100% of their their business to um, to virtual, and while I applaud that, I think it's um, it's tough to put my head around. I think it's um, definitely very very doable. It's a matter of how do you do that. I think to your point, um, profitably, and and I think um, you know how do you do that with maintaining your your team members um, and and their involvement in in care at the same time of keeping patients engaged. Um, and, and I think it's a transition, but, you know, getting to your point and your question, I think part of what, you know, our vision is um, of, of the future for not just our company, but I think for overall um, our industry, what I'd love it to be, if it, if it could be shared, it'd be wonderful. But I, I really see a day where, you know, the, the neurobiological disease that we all tackle and face is really viewed as important as CHF or cancer or HIV, and and it begins to be much more than an afterthought or a side uh, industry. It actually is integrated within acute medical healthcare delivery systems. Um, it's viewed as important, if not more, than elective surgeries and procedures and cosmetics and things that we see um, everyone right now in the current environment talking about missing. Um, and I get it. I, I know lots of um, have family members that are, um, you know, doctors that do elective procedures. So I think the reality is I get all of that. But I think part of the reason that I feel this way is because our vision, you know, it really is to provide that long-term based approach that is truly, you know, evidence-based and backed. It, it's mainstream. It's integrated within um, all holistic approach, I think, of, of providing care. How do you do that if all we do is take care of patients for 25 to 35 days in an inpatient setting? You don't. And so what we have to do is find new settings of care in a very creative, aggressive way, which is what we're doing, 
and to focus on this outpatient component, I think outpatient is kind of a, it's a ill-defined word, but to me, it's preventive care. It's educating on the front end before patients, you know, hopefully trying to prevent patients from um, experiencing a, a, either a relapse or even an addictive behavior to begin with. And so, you know, we have to provide a, I believe, a technology solution to that because it does help you do this in today's day and age. There are many, many applications, many ways that you can apply technology and connecting with the consumers are extremely important. I think on the other end of the spectrum of care, you know, you have outpatient, you have IOP, you have true community integration and self-directed accountability and things of that nature that you need to provide at a direct one-on-one -on -one basis with patients. And you can do that in a virtual setting in addition to the, maybe your traditional brick and mortar. I think as an organization and as leaders, what we have to do and what we're continuing to challenge ourselves with, Nick, is the ability to say, how do we build all of that? And how do we do that as efficiently as possible the traditional mind would say, let's go set up a bunch of brick and mortar outpatient businesses. We are going to have people come, you know, drive to and from and, and come to see our great counselors or great doctors, all the things that we have in a, in a location. But the reality of today is that that would be really tough to set that up. We don't know what the consumers are going to want to do, but what we do know is they need us. They need us even more today. And I think that spills over to your first comment about it's not just addiction, but it kind of is an overlap with behavioral and I think organizations like us are really beginning to look much more carefully at how do we also meet the needs of that behavioral health primary diagnosis of, you know, depression that then leads to, obviously, as you know, um, some type of addiction or potential of that. Um, and, and how are we dealing with stress and how are we dealing with all the anxiety and all the things there? And I think as as you begin to look more holistically at the patient and their journey through the potential disease that they could face, you begin to identify solutions. And because you're not possibly a startup in Silicon Valley that's all technology-based, you have to you know, start looking at ways to, to do this differently. And so you start reaching out and talking and learning and you find out, wow, we don't have to build this traditionally. We can look at new ways and technology can be a big part of that. And I think lowering the cost of care uh, really becomes part of your driver because I do believe providing access to patients is, is the number one way as, a, as an organization we can be effective in providing value. You have to have the patient <laughs> before you can ever deliver value. And so I think finding those connectors to a broader base of patients is the first way you can do that. And that's all, you know, you can't have people everywhere um, all over the country. It's a very costly thing. So you look for ways to do that in a much more efficient fashion. Technology, I think, is going to be that. And I don't know if that answered your question, but I think that's what I tried to at least. Yeah, I, I think that was really kind of a great overview of, you're right, there, there has to be that component of lowering the cost of care by combining the outpatient model as well as potentially telehealth here. I think something that I'm seeing currently with COVID is there's confusion around that telehealth piece, right? You know, as you said, a lot of people have been successful at converting their patients. I haven't seen 100%, but I've seen about 90, you know, kind of being an average among our clients anyway. Um, but still, it's a, a great percentage of people. But there is, in my mind, where, where I think people are making a mistake is they think that's going to be able to continue um, once, you know, states reopen up. 
And also, I think they're thinking like, oh, well, we can just do this across the country. You know, we don't even have to be location based. That's the wrong way to think about it. You know, like you said, what's really important here is integration into their local healthcare systems. And you're not going to be able to do that from a national telehealth model. You know, yeah, it might be helpful for some people here or there that, you know, maybe flew in for treatment for one reason or another. But the reality is they need to be integrated into the local healthcare system. Um, people definitely prefer to go local. You know, we've had clients running telehealth for, I mean, two years or more for some of them now. Um, and telehealth has always been a hard sell. They want brick and mortar and that's where the consumer goes. So will that change a little bit now that people have gotten more used to telehealth? Probably, but still people want face-to-face. -face, and I think there's a lot of value there. The research is still out in terms of telehealth being, you know, as, or, you know, equally beneficial to, um, face-to-face. But the payers also want the integration to the local healthcare system. So they're going to be less willing to probably, you know, pay for national telehealth if you don't have some kind of a local presence where that patient can then integrate into either your program or, um, you know, affordable care organizations or other providers in the area. So I think that's something that people need to be looking at. You, you know, what do you think about the telehealth piece? You know, where do you see it going uh, as we kind of come out of COVID here? Yeah. You know, I think the jury's still out a little bit on what on what you were just saying. I mean, I think at first it's way too early uh, to draw massive conclusion that um, it, that the way in which the current reimbursement changes that have been made as a part of the national emergency and, and the pandemic will last. But it's also, I think, in the same sense, um, a bit too early to say that it won't remain either. And there, look, there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of lobbying, and there's a lot of discussions taking place with a lot of different states to make sure that the telehealth waivers and the, and the licensure issues can be um, maintained after, you know, COVID-19 and, and the post-pandemic. And, and the way I look at it, uh, Nick, is not about, you know, whether it's successful for a company, but when we just think about access, and, and the goal of healthcare in general should be to ensure that everyone has some type of access point to it if needed. If you're an American citizen, the reality is, you know, telehealth does provide that access point for many patients that would never, especially in the behavioral health and the addiction space, would never seek um, in a physical environment, whether it's the old stigma or the current stigma, there's still the reality that that exists. And I think part of what telehealth provides is a, a way to break down that barrier. Um, will it always be that way? I hope not. I mean, I hope that people, as I mentioned, I mean, I want this to be, uh, I think our, our services and what we do for people and the way it changes their lives and their families and communities and society and the holistic approach to care is massive. And I think it's just as important as all that other stuff. However, um, I, I do think that it'd be great if, if physical on-site care um, would not have that negative stigma to it. And that when you set up an outpatient clinic in a strip mall or strip plaza, you know, you don't have politicians locally that challenge, you know, putting in an outpatient addiction treatment clinic. Um, because they're worried about the type of people that come there when they start opening up their eyes and realizing it's the it's the council members that are sitting next to them um, that struggle with this if there's six of them we know there's at least one that are uh, I mean it, it becomes a real issue that we can all really deal with and I think that's part of what telehealth in the current environment is opening eyes to is 
wow, this gives people that are professionals, that are commercial workers, that are um, average everyday, you know, Joe and Jane that can access care, that can help them identify their problems, can help them find solutions. And I'm all for that. I want to make that, uh, I, I want to push, you know, the, the whole virtual care for that very reason. And I think that's part of where I see it always being uh, an advantage. But what I don't know is, so how is reimbursement going to fix all this or create barriers in the future? And I think that's where we have to be really careful. I say that, and I will tell you, we launched um, clearly uh, a very aggressive uh, new telehealth virtual care um, component to our company. It's called Vertava Health. It's at vertavahealth.com. You can go in and see it. We did it very, very quickly. We did it with the approach that we want to get it out in the market. We want to understand. We want to learn. We want to adapt. And exactly to your point, Nick, we, we don't know what the rest of the world is going to do, but what we know is what we can control. It's going to be our attitude about this and our effort and what we believe is that we need to provide access. And if we can get access out to people um, and they can feel more comfortable seeking this uh, virtually, then by all means, we want to be able to say yes to that. And so um, our efforts have been poured into that, uh, you know, virtual care business unit. And um, we're seeing really cool things in a very short time. Yeah, those are great, great comments there. Uh, I'm very interested to see what the payers do. You know, I was talking with Cigna and Anthem as this kind of got going, and they seem to be excited about the telehealth component. But, you know, who knows <laughs> what the payers Yeah, do. I know, I know. And it's going to be coming down to the states. I mean, the sad part is, uh, in fact, I'm going to speak to um, the attorney generals, the National Attorney General Conference in, in Colorado in this summer, assuming it's still <laughs> going to go on. <laughs> yeah. But But the whole point for me is to really help all of the attorney generals understand that they have the ability to create incredible access and maintain that access with telehealth and the waivers and, and to help them understand the importance of maintaining those waivers and even expanding them for the states that haven't yet adopted them. Um, because think about this, we have, and this is old model, new model, you have patients that will travel all over the country to a location, wherever it is, for care. And in that environment, and in our current licensure, you have someone that's licensed providing care in the state. I'll just make this up, the state of Texas. And they came from, you know, the state of uh, Arizona. Well, if the waivers today say that Arizona allows a Texas licensed clinician to provide virtual IOP care, that's great. If that person doesn't have to get on a plane right now in the middle of a pandemic, and they can receive the care they need, and they don't have a provider in that state that they either feel comfortable with, they selected trust, et cetera, but they chose some other company to do it, then, then Arizona has said, yes, you, you are able to do that in this waiver scenario. The challenge is, though, you have Texas that says, we won't, we'll challenge that licensed clinician if they're providing care for the patient in Arizona, even though if this pandemic hadn't occurred, they were coming to your facility and you were doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just the strangest <laughs> set of things. So we've got a we've got a lot of work, is my point. And I don't know that we know the outcome, but we're we're going to dedicate ourselves to trying to find ways to you know solve that because I think it actually helps patients more than it does anybody else. 
Um, and I think that's what's important. Totally agree. Two things I kind of want to get to before we wrap up here. One is just kind of general comments. You know, we talked about the kind of the model and the flight of treatment and the differentiation or, or not the differentiation, but the lack of standardization that you saw when you originally came to addiction campuses. What were some other things that popped out at you as, you know, not being maybe ideal in terms of um, whether it's quality care delivery or the ability to grow the organization, you know, that you've seen in the industry that, seems to be common overall. You know, I think as we as we talked about, I mean, I think the heavy heavy reliance on um, what I'd call a, a SEO call center internet based approach and less relationship and and kind of um, value based approach in the marketplace, like local connections with you know, referral sources and, and individual doctors and emergency departments and EATs and the things that you hear, you know, that it was just very immature is the best way to put it. And it's not that they weren't in place, as you know, Nick, I mean, because that happens all the time, but it really, what are we doing? Is it just dropping off donuts or is it really delivering <laughs> a care, you know, a plan that shows that it's quality and this is what your patients, if you refer them, get, and this is the commitment. And I, I think um, clinical programming, frankly, is is very hard to wrap my head around. And honestly, it's um, it's part of what we're we're rebuilding and retooling. But you know, we and you know this from work you've done. But you know, we've we've followed a what I would consider to be a, a I think it's a pretty common model. But the Gorski model and the six stages of recovery and it's a yeah. developmental model. I mean, there's not a uniqueness to that. So what every company has to do is find their their way of differentiating their clinical programming. And you know, I, I don't want to say this um, and and it come across the wrong way, but there were a lot of what I just call, and this happens in every industry, by the way. I could say this about home care, I could say it about hospice, but there's a lot of marketing brochures that are put together that they say and, and everyone says is, is their clinical programs, but that's not true. Clinical programs are, you know, the processes and the way in which um, clinical care is being delivered in your, uh, whether it's on-site or virtual model, and, and how you structure that um, and managing the transitions of care based on acuity and based on needs and the uniqueness of each individual's um, diagnoses that's what clinical programming is. Um, it's not just, you know, equine assisted therapy. It's not just, you know, the things that you, you read and you see zip lining, and it's not just wilderness therapy. Those are all important things, and they have a component in holistic approach to people um, and providing care. But what's the core of the clinical program? And, and to me, that's what has to mature, and that's what we're trying to develop build knowledge and build skills and experience and training um, our clinicians. Um, you know, there are a lot of companies that we've learned in this business, Nick, that, that they're staffed predominantly with like one medical provider and then a lot of what I think are called recovery coaches. But those recovery coaches aren't certified. They're not, they're, they're people, frankly, that um, have experienced addiction in their own life and have made a remarkable journey in a recovery. And I think that's an incredible testament to some of the great things that happen in our space. The challenge is um, the model has to evolve. It has to be beyond that. It needs to include all the stuff that were good from the past, but it's got to mature to the point of really providing real evidence-based care that can scientifically be shown 
to deal with this disease because this is truly a disease. It is not just a behavior issue. This is not just choices people make, but it truly is a neurological, neurobiological disease that cannot always be um, managed well. <laughs> and in fact, the moment people start realizing this outside of our space is when real progress can be made. And those are things that I think I really kind of came to appreciate as I've jumped into the space and started hearing from other experts in this industry that have said, watch for this, look for this, um, figure out how you're going to do, uh, you know, this change and, and be, a, be aware um, that this is part of the, the stigma of our space, not just the stigma that patients have in needing to seek treatment. Yeah, great comments. You know, I, I love that you brought up like the donut drop and the grip and grin on the business development end because this is something that's just such a, a failure. <laughs> yeah. But people uh, don't know yeah. any other way, unfortunately. Um, so that was kind of uh, the last questions I had for you was your business development team has been very successful. Um, and you've also done a really good job around negotiating uh, in-network contracts. And I don't know if you just wanted to kind of give some general advice to people out there, you know, what are some things that they could do to, um, you know, have similar success? Yeah. So, you know, look, I think this may be a general answer, but, but I will, I, I firmly believe it. So I, I say it. Um, and, and you can push me on this, Nick, if you don't like it, you can give me, give me more detail. But like, I, first of all, I mean, there is absolutely no question that our team on the, the sales side, the business development side, our managed care team, our marketing team, they, they are phenomenal leaders that are leading our efforts. So leadership is extremely important and finding people that have experience, that have the skills and the commitment to actually lead a team is is the in my mind number one thing because this is all a people business it's always going to be and that's our biggest as i said before earlier in the podcast it's a, it's our biggest differentiation is our culture and that starts with our people the team part of this um you know frankly is we we began just putting a lot of new expectations out setting new expectations on what business development does it's not donut drops you know to that point <laughs> it isn't i mean yeah maybe you have one but that's not what you that's not what you need to do to sell um and provide you know a great approach to uh, our our consumers and our customers which are referral sources but but i think um upgrading that building trust training people on you know account activities and and what what's good routing and targeting. There are very specific things that go into defining productivity for a sales rep and an account executive. And so I think for, for what I've seen in our company work really well is I have a great leader um, that she, she's worked for me before. Um, and so there's already a trust between uh, she and I. She knows how to execute. She knows how to get people on her team that are committed and passionate. And then you just have to have a lot of grit, a lot of communication and trust on the sales piece. And it's a lot about information, a lot about how do you use marketing and the call center connection. And you, you know this, you've worked with us, you know some of our gaps um, and, and also some of the things that we've done well. And I think for, for us, we've been able to try to focus in on targeting the right accounts, expanding your call pattern and call routes. It takes a lot of effort by people that have been ingrained in a way of doing things to expand their routine. And what I have been so impressed by our team, Nick, is they've done it. They've trusted a new leader. They've bought in and they go out and try it with a willingness to fail. And they've found a lot of success in that. So it then breeds this like 
overwhelming like joy and a lot of fun and they start being competitive and, it, and it's really a neat environment. There's a one true one team, one company approach there. On the managed care side, it's the same thing. You've got to have a great leader that knows what they're doing, that's been involved. And of course we do. We have someone that's been in the industry um, in the payer side for a very long time, has a lot of good contacts and a network, but understands the details of contracts. And that's really important. It's, it, it, a lot of people think all it takes is just calling up a payer and getting all these things out on the table and you just negotiate rates and it just happens over two or three months. The amount of energy our team and, and my leader, along with the teams that we work with, have had to put into this, this, these negotiations. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling, but the progress that's been made has been incredible because you know, you learn the art of the process. And so you begin to do things in preparation for the process and you, you get, you get the right talent base in your organization and you look outside. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, as you know, we don't have but one person on my executive leadership team that come from the provider side of addiction treatment or behavioral health. We've had, I have people that have come from the post-acute side, the acute side, the payer world, um, uh, and the reality is, um, and even the consumer side. Um, so the, the interesting thing is we have a consortium of leaders that have experiences and they understand behavioral health. They've been plugged into it in various parts of their experiences in life, but they're bringing a whole new subset of experiences that they can apply that they've learned from other industries. And now they're applying here. And the managed care world is one that I will tell you, um, it's a challenge and we're just fortunate in that we found, um, you know, I was able to get a, a really good leader and I'm giving her the ropes to do what she needs to do. And we set clear paths and then we just hold our ground because at the end of the day, um, payers need us. And I think the moments providers really can provide good quality, they can substantiate what they do. They're open to creativity around how you contract and value-based is this big buzzword in this space, but for people like me and others that have actually done value-based purchasing in other industries, we get it already. And so we're coming to the table with some of those conversations and, and we're open to helping and sharing. And so I think the reality is um, the managed care progress is because we have great people and they're really good at executing and you tie all that together between business development and payers, uh, what we've negotiated, and then marketing to tie the accounts and the, the, the referral sources together to pull that in-network relationship through, It's um, that's where success comes from. And so we've seen that work really well, and we're, we're continuing to make a lot of good progress there. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. I think that's really useful information for everybody. You know, one of the things that you commented on was that diversity there and you know, random, probably most people don't know this about me, but I actually did executive um, diversity and inclusion training for uh, about two years with Fortune 500s. I worked with Goodwill. I worked with the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, and that was always something that, you know, we promoted quite heavily was diversity of um, thought and getting people from different backgrounds and different spaces. You know, yes, it's good to have people with organizational knowledge that have been there a while, but you also need to have those people coming from outside because it just provides a lot of value. And I've seen that over and over again in this space, you know. I mean, I look at what you've been able to do at addiction campuses and your team, it's been incredible. And, you know, I don't know if I'd see that same level of progress with a team that had grown up just in this space. You know, I've seen that pretty consistently that the teams that have a mix um, do a lot better within behavioral health in general. 
and then the comment, the, uh, the business development. Yeah, those that's great feedback there. We were just working with an organization recently, which is not uncommon. Their business development team was just kind of all over the place, willy-nilly, you know, re- no real focus, didn't know what they were doing, didn't know what actions drove what metrics, just kind of went out and did the donut drops and the grip and grin and hope for the best. And that's not really a strategy. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's right. Hope, as they say, hope is not a strategy. Right. <laughs> and so... Uh, it, they, there's a lot to, to expect that. I mean, look, there's a lot of things that I haven't covered on that, but, um, but yeah, you're right. It, it's really been remarkable. I mean, I just mentioned, um, you know, the, the amount of, of, of effort you put into helping people see a different view does take a lot of work. And I think what I've been just most impressed by our team is their willingness, you know, to expand their own minds. And, and really, when you think about in any challenge, I mean, the, the end of the day, it really comes down to mindset. And that's what has been neat to watch in our company is we've had a big shift in mindset from a year ago. And we're just, we're not all the way there. Don't get me, don't, please don't let anyone take this the wrong way. We have a long way to go. Um, and we are going, but it's, uh, and we're going to get there, but it's been so fun and fascinating to watch a group of people buy in and then commit and learn. And and that has resulted in some success for us that we're really excited about. And we think we have a lot more, um, you know, in store. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. I mean, your insights are invaluable. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of the work that you do, your focus on quality, your focus on value, and everything that you're doing as you're, you're building addiction campuses in a new direction. So I appreciate that. Um, if people want to get in touch with you or just uh, get in touch with addiction campuses, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, just just reach out. I mean, we obviously have um, our website, addictioncampuses.com. We have um, you know, we're, we're found everywhere. They can certainly reach out directly to me. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, under Matt Morgan, you'll probably see some things posted that we're trying to be actively engaged in. Um, but just reach out to us, uh, whether it's by phone or by email, um, you know, you can find us all, you know, online there as well, but we're open to it. I I'd love to being new, especially and having a team that's, uh, under one year old in this space, Nick, I would just say, I mean, what, what I hope you've heard and what your audience hears is what we believe is really important, um, you know, as a, as a leadership team. And that is we believe in transparency, uh, which means we're vulnerable and we're OK with that vulnerability. Um, we're a creative can do attitude type mindset. Uh, we do things together um, as an organization, and as a leadership team, because we believe alignment is so critical. So we'd love to be engaged with new people. We'd love to understand what's going on and we want to learn. We don't know it all. We'd love to continue learning and we'd love to help if we have an opportunity to with others. So I would encourage anyone that's listening, if they want to help or if they want to be helped, we're willing and um, we're able. And I think we're focused on bettering not just ourselves, but others. And if there's a way we can do that, we're open to it. And anyone on our team would, would benefit from that being new. And so um, I would just, uh, that's that's partly partially why, uh, Nick, I'm selfishly glad that you asked me to join because it helps us expose, you know, ourselves and our team to the industry. And and also, hopefully, it shows that we're really willing and able um, to engage in new ways with others. And so thank you for that exposure and what you do, as I've said before. um, On this podcast, but but especially in, in how you do things just generally with your company. Um, it's it's unselfish, um, and it's it's a way that um, benefits all. 
and so uh, really appreciate about what you do and what your team does. I really appreciate that, Matt. Um, for all the listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. I appreciate you for taking the time to join us today, and we'll see you next time.